Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. So there are, I guess, rare transcendent cultural moments that force preachers to, you know, scrap what they had planned for Sunday and uh, change direction and write a new sermon. Um, at least it used to be rare. I did that more in 2020 uh, than in all my previous years of preaching combined. And so here I was this week preparing for my first sermon for 2021, uh, excited to get back to some normalcy, ready to uh, get into a fresh start, new year, sermon outline, ready to write, all of that on Wednesday and then the United States of America Capitol uh, building was breached for the first time since 1812, because of course it was. And I found myself, even if, even if the PCA didn't ask us to do this, I, I, I found myself feeling the need to scrap it and, and address, you know, not just what happened this week, but where we find ourselves. Now, speaking very candidly, Uh, And I suppose vulnerably, the challenge I feel in this hour is the pressure of so um, many differing opinions, meaning it's not just that um, it's not just that many of you want to hear from your church. You have predetermined what you want to hear from your church. And I, I recognize that, including some who don't want to hear anything. From your church on these issues at all. And to be honest, in my people-pleasing sinfulness, and that is a besetting struggle for me, in my people-pleasing sinfulness, I want to meet those expectations. I want to say something that fits nicely with your opinion of things that you will go home this afternoon and say, what a great sermon, and I sure do like my preacher. Now, that sinful temptation is problematic in so many ways, something every minister has to constantly resist. But here's the thing. Even if I wanted to indulge that temptation in this particular hour of cultural chaos, I couldn't. There is simply too much discord, culturally speaking, to go chasing the approval of others. Were I to seek the, the affirmation of one opinion, I would simply evoke the disdain of other opinions. There's just no way to preach the choir when the choir is so divided. And I think that's actually a good thing. Because what I felt this week <laughs> instead was, I'm just left to do what I have to do anyway, which is to preach Jesus, of course. What do we need right now? We need Jesus. This is not a cop-out Sunday school answer. It's the truth. We need Jesus 
right now. And specifically, we need to be reminded that Jesus reigns. No doubt, the United States of America is mighty, but she is not almighty. Jesus Christ is almighty, and that is my singular word for us this morning. We're going to turn to this fateful moment when Jesus and uh, the earthly politics of the day collide. It's the only time this happens in the gospel, when King Jesus stands before the kings of the earth. And I want to answer two questions from that encounter. Who seems to be in charge and who's really in charge? First, who seems to be in charge? Verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, this can be a little confusing uh, because essentially there are two authorities at play here. There was the Jewish court led by these chief priests and elders that was known as the Sanhedrin. But the Sanhedrin operated under the authority of the Roman courts, um, specifically the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So the Sanhedrin was given uh, freedom to decide on religious matters, of course, but they didn't have the authority to carry out uh, more severe sentences like an execution, which is what they want for Jesus. For that to happen, they had to appeal to the higher court, to the Roman authorities. So the context of our passage is that Jesus has already stood trial before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish uh, courts, and he has been convicted of blasphemy, which according to Jewish law is a sentence of death. But now the Jewish authorities have to convince the Roman authorities to carry out that sentence. And that's not necessarily easy because Rome couldn't care less about a religious charge like blasphemy. So what we see in verse 1, where it says that they are conspiring how to kill him, what we see in verse 1 is good old-fashioned, corrupt, political scheming. They are trying to figure out a way to manipulate the system and get what they want, Jesus dead. And their plan is to bring him to Pilate, not with religious language like blasphemy, which Pilate couldn't care less about, but with the more politically charged language, king of the Jews. They knew that Rome would have a problem with that because that is insurrection language. The Jews lived under the reign of Caesar. Caesar alone was king of the Jews. And to claim authority over Caesar would be high treason and worthy of crucifixion. So they conspire. And they bring him to Pilate. Now pick up the story in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor... The governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So now it's moved from Jesus being conspired against politically by worldly authorities to Jesus being questioned by the political authorities of the day. Now think about that. The Lord of the nations is on trial by the nations. And what's most striking in all of it is that Jesus actually does appear to be at their mercy. You see, this actually fits a common theme uh, that, that would take place at the time. There were always these uh, small little insurrections, uprisings popping up uh, within the Roman Empire. Many of them were Jewish-led. And most 
simply, most of them simply just flamed out, so to speak. But if a revolution got enough momentum where it was actually becoming a threat to Roman authority, then it would be swiftly crushed. And this, it seems, is what's taking place with Jesus. His revolution that you read about in the Gospels, which he calls the kingdom of God, it has gotten too threatening. Enough is enough, and Jesus is dealing with the big boys now. The chief priest bearing the authority of the Sanhedrin, the governor of a Roman empire bearing the authority of Caesar himself, the feeling of the text is that Jesus has finally met his match. Notice even the verbs in in the passage, like in verse 2, where it says, they bound him, they led him away, they delivered him over to Pilate the governor. That is clearly trying to communicate that Jesus, in this story, is uncharacteristically subservient in the passage. He is at the mercy of their authority. And not the other way around. And this creates quite a dilemma for those of us who call Jesus king. When Pilate asks Jesus, are you king? We are being faced with that same question. Is this man we call king truly king? It's easy to say yes when he is, when he is, you know, commanding storms and and raising the dead and casting out demons But what about when our king stands bound and delivered before earthly kingdoms? Perhaps he's not the king we thought he was. Or even worse, he is our king, but clearly our king is weaker than the kingdoms of this world. Or, he is a different king. He is a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. What if Jesus is so in charge that he actually subjects himself to the powers of this world in order to accomplish his purposes? Does that make sense? What if if in letting them be in charge, Jesus is actually exercising his charge over them? What if in his weakness, Jesus is actually flexing his sovereign muscles? That's the greater story going on here. And it is the story our hearts desperately need to see in the hour that is upon us, culturally speaking. Who seems to be in charge? Rome. Now let's consider who's really in charge. There is a subtle yet unmistakable assuredness to Jesus in our passage. Return to verse 11. Pilate asks... Are you the king of the Jews? Now look at Jesus' response. You have said so. Now how's that for a non-answer, right? You have said so? What is that supposed to mean? Well, he actually uses this phrase several times in the Gospels. It's one of his favorite. And every time it's meant to communicate the same thing. You know the answer before you ask the question. You have said so is his way of confronting the questioner with, with uh, the fact that deep down they already know what is true. Jesus is saying to Pilate, you know the answer, Pilate, but you don't want to admit it. Pilate, your question is a, a nervous defensiveness, hoping that your intuitions are wrong, hoping against hope that, you, that what you fear to be true isn't true, but it's true and you know it. Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Jesus stares down Pilate and the entire authority of the Roman Empire, perhaps I like to think with a little grin and says, you said it yourself. 
Verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Meaning, Jesus is so unthreatened by the highest Jewish authorities, he doesn't even feel the need to dignify their accusations with a response. Verse 13. Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they're testifying against you? Pilate is saying, Don't you hear what they're accusing you of? Don't you know that they're trying to get me to put you to death? Do you understand the gravity of the situation? You want to say anything? Verse 14. But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. It's that last line. The governor was greatly amazed that speaks to the poignant message of this passage. Pontius Pilate, one of the most powerful figures in the ancient world, is in awe of Jesus. What has Jesus done that is so amazing? Well, it's not what he has done. It's what he hasn't done. Pilate is used to people in this situation saying everything they can to defend themselves. That's why he says, are you going to answer? But Jesus remains silent. And Pilate is also used to people falling down at his feet and begging for his mercy as a desperate last attempt to save their lives. But Jesus will not grovel at Pilate's feet. Pilate has never seen a man like this with such brazen confidence as he stands before the one who is going to decide his fate, so unimpressed and unthreatened by the power of the Roman Empire, Jesus doesn't even give Rome a word. That's our king. But what is our king doing? If he is the king, then why not put a stop to all of this? If his power is greater than Rome's, then why not unleash that power? Why is the greater king choosing to submit himself to the lesser king? The one in charge choosing to subject himself to those under his charge. What is our king doing? You see, that's not the way authority and power works in our world. What is Washington, D.C., if not an endless competition to gain the upper hand of power? What is behind storming the Capitol or rioting in the streets? What is behind all of the fraud and all of the corruption, all of the politicking and filibustering? What's behind it all? The frantic chase of power. And when power is gained, never, ever, ever, would the thought of willingly laying down power be entertained? That's how our world works. But as I have noted countless times from this pulpit, Jesus turns the ways of our world upside down. The ways of his kingdom subvert the ways of the world by running counterintuitive to the ways of the world. And why should that not be the case when it comes to power and authority? Well, it is the case. Here, in one last backwards move from Jesus, the one who is in charge decides to let them be in charge. Why? Because, and this is the key point, because his ambitions go beyond conventional ambitions. 
And those ambitions determine what he does with his power, authority, and strength. Meaning, if his ambition was Israel nationalism, to conquer Rome and establish Israel as the dominant nation on earth, then yes, what he is doing is not a good strategy. But that's not his aim. His aim is not world domination, but world salvation. Domination requires the seizing of power. Salvation requires the laying down of power. Here's the point. And please give heed to this now more than ever. It all comes down to what you think God's purposes are for the world. Am I stronger than my four sons? Yes, I am. Well, then how come when we wrestle, they end up beating me up? It all comes down to my purpose in wrestling with them. If my purpose is to defeat them and establish my dominance, then in a moment that could be done. But that's not why we wrestle. My purpose is their development, to embolden them, to nurture them, to encourage them, to entertain them. And so these purposes determine how my strength is used. Okay, Jesus before Pilate and the entire authority of the Roman Empire. Who's in charge? King Jesus is in charge. But what is the king up to? What are his purposes? Not the destruction of Rome, but the redemption of Rome, indeed all the earth. And therefore, without a fight, the king submits to Pilate's sentence. And crowning his cross is a sign that reads Jesus, king of the Jews. Now it was hung to mock him. As if to say, look at your king. This is your king, helplessly hanging from our cross. And if his purpose was to defeat Rome, then yes, that sign is his mockery. But if his purpose is salvation and redemption, then that sign is his boast. Because if the king of the world wants to save the world, then that cross is his most kingly act. His greatest defeat becomes his greatest triumph. So back to the original question of the sermon. Who's in charge? Who's in charge of the world? Who's in charge of these United States of America? Jesus is in charge. He's in charge of Rome. He's in charge of America. But what we discover in his trial before Pilate, is that the one in charge has has determined to bring an unconventional charge. The one in charge has an unconventional charge. A different purpose for his power. Now here's the challenge for us as followers of Jesus. As followers of Jesus as our king. We confess that he is in charge. Are we comfortable with how that charge is executed? We ascribe to him supremacy. Are we on board with the ways of his supremacy? Because speaking candidly, it looks nothing like what we are seeing right now in our nation. What we are seeing on both sides, none are innocent. What we are seeing on both sides is a frantic Desperate, panicked, grasping for worldly power with an apocalyptic paranoia. 
Meaning it is as if the fate of existence hangs on the balance of who has power. And I just, friends, we need to get a grip. We are Christians. We believe Jesus Christ is king and Donald Trump is a vapor. Hate to bring him up. Really do. I mean that. I don't like bringing him up. But what choice do I have if I'm going to be a faithful preacher in this hour that is upon us? How can I not talk about the very thing that everybody's talking about? It is what it is. This man has positioned himself as a dividing line of American obsession with power. Some listening love Trump. Some listening loathe Trump. Both are making the same mistake, conceding way too much power to him. And therefore, both need the same admonition. Dethrone this man from a position that does not belong to him. Jesus is in charge of our nation. And we say amen to that. But will we amen his purpose for our nation? Revival. Redemption, justice, righteousness, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is his purpose for our nation and every nation. And if the cross has taught us anything, then those purposes are accomplished in unconventional and uncomfortable ways. Have you ever considered that we need this moment? Have you considered that for too long American Christianity has wed itself to Caesar? And it's past time to be rebuked. Have you ever considered that our comfort does need to be shaken? Have you considered that our trite, prosperity Christianity that makes total sense only in prosperous America needs to be dismantled? Have you considered that our abandonment of salt and light in favor of GOP or DNC needs to reap what it has sown? Have you considered that we need crucifixion that will yield the resurrection we're dying for? I know it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge right now. I know it. But have you considered that that is exactly what his charge is for us? Jesus is not panicking over the state of America. He is as calm and confident as he is in our text standing before the Roman Empire. And if we viewed things his way, we would be too. I recently had a very, honestly, it was a vulnerable conversation with an older friend of mine. I love this man, and he loves me. And it was very clear how burdened he was by what has become of our country, Specifically, he mentioned his grandkids and the world that they would grow up in. And he asked me a really interesting question. One might call it a desperate question, begging me. He said, Robert, I trust you. I really do. And I, I get it. I'm old and you're younger and you see things that maybe I don't see. And so he said, maybe I'm missing it. He said, Robert, tell me some good news. <laughs> tell me some good news. It was as if he was begging me to convince him that things aren't as bad as they seem to be. And you know what I did? I did my best to give him some encouraging things that I see taking place, culturally speaking, and there are some of those. And I, I, shared, with some, I shared some things that I see in the younger generation that I personally find very encouraging and so forth. But in the days after the conversation, the more I thought about it, the more I realized how much I failed him pastorally in that answer. He said to me, 
tell me some good news. And I tried to do so according to conventional wisdom. But listen again to his question. Tell me some good news. I thought to myself, good news. (laughs) That is our word for gospel. (laughs) He was literally looking at his pastor with a burdened soul saying, tell me the gospel, pastor. And I gave him anecdotal evidence of cultural victories. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is in charge. And like we proclaim every week, the one who is in charge has died, is risen, and shall come again. What good news do I have for us in this cultural moment of perpetual bad news? The good news I have for us is the good news. The good news. The gospel. The gospel alone. Let me pray. Lord, lift our eyes to your kingdom. Lift our eyes off of our social medias. Lift our eyes off of the news. Lift our eyes off of cynicism and fear and paranoia. Lift our eyes off of Washington. Lift our eyes to the king and your kingdom and your purposes. And you promise that this sacrament will do just that. And so would you feed us with the better news. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ shall come again. That is the good news we cling to this day. And we walk out of this room in that confidence and in that hope alone. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.